Coming up, what an excellent day for Willie and Carl. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to Minute 13 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And I'm Andy Nelson. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. And yes, folks, we have a very special guest with us today. That voice you heard might sound familiar if you listen to the Marvel Movie Minute on the True Story FM network. That's T-R-U story.fm. And actually, Andy has done an episode on The Exorcist in his other show, The Next Reel. And I highly recommend you go check that out. This is Andy Nelson, host of the Marvel Movie Minute show. Hello, Andy. Hello. Thank you both so much for having me. I am thrilled to talk about The Exorcist with you. Okay. Awesome. Uh, and Andy, before we jump in, I'd love to hear about uh, about you, about your show, and also uh, how you got introduced to The Exorcist and what this movie means uh, to you. Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, thank you so much. Um, I... You know, do I've been doing movie podcasting for twelve years now? Very long oh, time. Wow. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, a little old hat, I suppose. Um, primarily on the Next Reel, which is a podcast that I started with, you know, a buddy from college, and we've just mm. been talking about movies forever. I, I went to film school, so I worked in the industry for a very long time, and uh, and but you know, my I, I just love cinema, and I love talking about it, and um, I've always had a draw to horror films. But it's funny with The Exorcist. This was one of those films that I think. Back in, uh, I'm guessing junior high, mm. uh, you know, I, I I had some friends, and there were a few movies that had these mythos crafted around them for some reason. And, oh yes, and this film and The Wall, uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall, oh. were the two <laughs> films that largely. Uh, my my buddy would always tell me about. It. He's like, "Don't watch the wall by yourself, or you're going to commit suicide." <laughs> and he said, oh and "Don't ever watch the Exorcist." Or no, he said, "If you watch the Exorcist." And you see the devil in it. That means you're going to die. And, and so, you know, so it was a very long time before I watched either of those films. And, you know, it, it was ridiculous. And I I think I finally watched The Exorcist finally in high school and, you know, certainly found it to be, uh, you know, pretty terrifying experience. And it's mm. it's been a film that I've always really enjoyed. You know, I was uh, there in the theaters when they when the <sighs> scariest the version you've never seen uh, right. was was released, got to see that with a full crowd and, you know, seeing like the audience reaction to like the spider crawl and things like that. I mean, it's great. It's just it's a thrilling, thrilling experience to see um, with a big group of people. Did and you so, ever get to watch the wall? Uh, oh, I, I, I did. I did. I did finally. Crazy. <laughs> right. I watched it alone too, and I. I still oh no! It. Oh no! <laughs> no, I, I. I think that's a fantastic piece of. Yeah, and you're like, uh, oh, this is just well. a bunch of music videos. This is not. Yeah, it's like, like uh, you know, the things that that young people say about things, and, and it's funny because now I'm always like, I wonder what my kids say about. Like, are there movies that they talk about in this way? So. Who knows? It's got to be like random TikTok videos or something like that. Um, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. The Momo footage. Wait, the oh, what? Yeah, the, yep, <laughs> the that. Momo footage. Yeah, that's the yep. Wait, tell me about this Momo footage. Oh, what, maybe what is we this? shouldn't, actually. Oh, oh, maybe not? Okay. All right. <laughs> maybe Don't we shouldn't. watch Momo alone. She'll come okay. through the, uh, the camera <laughs> right. and eat you. All right. Well, I guess I'm, I'm deleting that. Um, <laughs> giving me work, guys. Uh, oh, my God. Andy, so you said you've been doing this for, for how many years again? We first uh, released our, uh, our first episode of the podcast, The Next Reel, on November 11th, 2011. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, we're just about to hit our our 12th birthday. 
Wow. It's crazy. Keenan, in, in podcasting years, I feel like we are the are the two young priests in this equation. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. The old priest, yes. Yes. And we need, <laughs> I mean, not, <laughs> not old in, in, in years, but in podcasting, you know, experience and stuff like that. You but are, strong you, in spirit and we, yes. are, we are weak in spirit. <laughs> yes, yes. So we need we need a holy a holy Kenobi. Holy Kenobi. Ooh, I'm coining that. <laughs> oh, it does say, but yeah, but you mentioned I mean we did talk about this film. We did an Ellen Burstyn series. Yes. Um, wow. Real, and that was back in twenty fourteen. We talked about uh, this, Alice doesn't live here anymore and Requiem mm-hmm. for a Dream. So yes. um, yeah, yeah, fantastic, yeah. a fantastic actress. I'm thrilled that I get a talk about a few minutes of her. So Yes. Yay. She's in this, these minutes. Oh man. All right. Well, let's, let's jump into it again. Uh, Andy, we are, we are so happy to have you here with us. Okay. So our minute begins with Chris McNeil clutching herself against the cold after just closing the window to her daughter's room. And it ends with a shot of the rooftops of Georgetown university. Hmm. But let's go back to that unusually cold bedroom. Chris is bothered by the cold, but it seems like she's chalking it up to the open window. She moves over to her daughter, still asleep in the bed, covers her back up because remember, we found her sleeping in this freezing room with the covers off, uh, checks to see if she's cold and then says, sure do love you and kisses her. Now, this is a quick reveal of something we can touch on more later when we see Chris and Reagan interact, but I just want to bring this up here because this is the first time it's shown, and it's shown in a way that we can trust that what she is saying is true because she is saying it to her daughter who is presumably asleep, and we'll get into that a little bit later as well, but it is the reveal that Chris does love her daughter, which right off the bat is sort of a subversion of expectations. The movie has already subtly revealed to us that Chris is an actress. And by this time in the book, we understand that she is a pretty big actress, uh, pretty famous. She's the star of the script that she's reading in bed. And I do want to point out, right, Mm -hmm. that we see here in the previous minute um, in the master bedroom alone in the bed. So I mean, that's something else that we're implying that she doesn't have a husband or that the husband is gone. Yes, yes, you are absolutely right. Um, so we can understand that Chris McNeil is a big freaking deal. Uh, and so we could think that maybe this demon is taking advantage of this little girl's frayed relationship with her mother. It would be so easy and also so lazy to paint Chris McNeil as this cold and distant mother who doesn't have time for her kid because she's this famous movie star. But What I love about this movie is that the movie decides to show us her love for Reagan first. We meet Chris the mom before we meet Chris the superstar. And I think that's very important. And it's done in uh, this way that I think is very Shakespearean. Uh, Hang on, let me just adjust my nerd glasses here because, oh no, alas, we have fallen into the Shakespeare trap once again. I don't know if you warned Andy that this is the kind of show that we do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Shakespeare trap. <laughs> yes. We have a little thing. We fell into the Shakespeare trap once before. Um, okay. So there's this thing that goes back to Shakespeare plays that when a character is on stage alone, when they are doing a monologue or a soliloquy, or maybe they're talking to a character who is dead or asleep uh, and can't hear them, they always speak the truth. Here you see the heart, the true feelings of the character. They could be a villain. They could be an unreliable or deceptive hero. They could be lying to everybody else on that stage. But when they are alone, that's when they turn 
inward or to us, the audience, and speak only the truth, or at least what they believe to be the truth. Um, Keenan, you mentioned Sir Lawrence Olivier in Richard III. The only time Richard is telling the truth is when he's talking to us, letting us right. in on his scheme. In Othello, the only time Iago isn't lying is when there is no one on stage to lie to. This is strictly for us. This is shorthand for, hey, at least this part right here is true. Uh, one of the things they say about the fool in King Lear is that he's the only character who speaks the truth. And ah, he's yes. mostly speaking to Lear. So that's really mm. interesting that, um, you know, you might say that's a contradiction to this rule you've set up. But maybe mm. not, because Lear is someone who can't, um, either is losing his mind and can't process or just refuses to hear the truth. So mm-hmm. the fool can say whatever he wants to say. That's a good point. I did I did think a little bit about uh, the fool in another way in that because King Lear is a king, um, everybody is kind of afraid to disagree with him. Everybody is kind of uh, worried about uh, what – uh, he will think or what he will do if uh, what they say displeases him in some way. But it's kind of like the fool's job to mm-hmm. make light of life and kind of, you know, speak plainly. And I do like how Shakespeare uses fools to kind of say exactly what uh, what is going on and exactly what everybody is thinking, um, even to somebody as uh, powerful and potentially dangerous to them as a king. Right. I was trying to read up about, you know, King Lear because we have a character named Reagan and our character here is named Reagan, but yes. I haven't. I haven't found a nice, tidy, you know, reason why that would be. Oh, my God. Keenan, I am so glad you actually brought that up oh, because, oh, no. In the, oh, we are we are going deeper and deeper and deeper. This <laughs> the is Shakespeare trap. Oh, no. the Shakespeare trap. We're never going to get out. But no, um, there's a there's a little bit in the book. Uh, I can't find it right now. But where Chris McNeil, I think it's be, when she's looking at the rose on the, the table that Reagan leaves her like every morning at breakfast and she looks at it and she's like, oh, and she thought, you know, she almost named her Goneril. And <laughs> I was so confused by this. I had no idea what like Goneril. It sounds like a disease. Like what? Uh, Gargamel. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I would name my daughter. <laughs> yeah, right. And I didn't until until I watched like a, a production uh, on YouTube of King Lear, mm-hmm. with, you know, starring James Earl Jones, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I realized like, oh, King Lear has three daughters. He has uh, Reagan, Goneril, and those are the two like evil daughters. Right. And then he has who is it? A few, Cordelia. Not, Cordelia, yeah, one of those Elias. Well, why would you um, not name your daughter Cordelia? Who's in, that seems like daughter. the one to go with, yeah. right? <laughs> right? What is what is this this like Reagan? Yeah, I I have no idea. Um, it's German for rain. I don't know. Yeah, um, I, yeah, it's like queen or something like. That. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't quite figure out why. Goneril yeah. would be the last on that list. That would be the last <laughs> one, right? But if, it would be as a I am the demon Goneril. Yes, <laughs> I have possessed your your cunting daughter. Yes. Right. If we, uh, if, yeah, I mean, you would think that, uh, you know, the demon shows up. It's like, oh, your name's Goneril. I, mm, I don't know. They're communicating on the Ouija board. It's like, so what's your name? Ooh. Oh, okay. Uh, I gotta go. <laughs> Never mind. I'm going to look, look elsewhere. Andrew, do you have any thoughts about this, this moment here? Uh, I, well, I mean, the Shakespearean element is very interesting. I hadn't really uh, thought about it. I was, I was just, um, you know, kind of taken by the, um, I guess kind of the the peace that we have in this room at this point, you know, it, it mm. doesn't feel like uh, evil at this point. Like mm. as the film progresses, it the the cold in the room starts taking on a presence. Like it's cold because of something else other than nature. And mm. here, like this is the first time where, or maybe perhaps the only time where I feel like it's cold in this room because the window is open. Like who knows? I mean, it, I guess you can end up reading it both ways, but 
you know, as the start of the film, it does feel like we're at a space where perhaps things are a little more normal than they will become later in the film. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not exactly sure what the intentions are. Obviously, there's something going on in the house because we have some form of rats or something up in the attic making all sorts of crazy noise that, you know, as you know, people going into a horror film called The Exorcist, we assume that it's not rats. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I suppose you could take it that the room um, is cold for something other than uh, this, uh, you know, the, the demon already working its way into taking over reagan but i I like that at this point it just feels like she went to bed with her window open it's Mm -hmm. cold outside i'm going to shut it tell her i love her and it it just like in the scope of a film like setting up the world as to like what to expect like this feels like the relationship that we have between mom and daughter and so yes yes um and so yeah friedkin has done this here with chris speaking to her daughter uh who can't hear her um and he's doing it to say this isn't the story you think it's going to be chris is not a bad mom mm-hmm. although she might think that she is and this that is one of her skeletons her her inner demons um and speaking of inner demons right there's a there's a part in the book that happens uh here uh before she goes downstairs uh she goes back to her room and back to sleep and she dreams, and that dream is very disturbing. Let's have a listen. A reading from the Book of Blatty. Chris slept and dreamed about death in the staggering particular. Death as if death were still never yet heard of, while something was ringing, she gasping, dissolving, slipping off into void, thinking over and over, I'm not going to be, I will die, I won't be, and forever and ever, oh, Papa, don't let them, oh, don't let them do it, don't let me be nothing forever, melting, unraveling, ringing the ringing of the phone. She leapt up with her heart pounding, hand to the phone, and no weight in her stomach, a core with no weight and her telephone ringing. She answered the phone. The assistant director. In makeup at six, honey. Right. How you feeling? If I go to the bathroom and it doesn't burn, then I figure I'm ahead. He chuckled. I'll see you. Right. And thanks. She hung up, and for moments sat motionless, thinking of the dream. A dream. Well, like thought in the half-light of waking. That terrible clarity. Gleam of the skull non-being, irreversible. She could not imagine it. God, it can't be. She considered, and at last bowed her head. But it is. She went to the bathroom, put on a robe, and padded quickly down to the kitchen, down to life and sputtering bacon. Jeez. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> We're going to join her in just a minute, but first, holy shit. Talk about truth. So here is something that really bothers Chris. The idea of death, the idea that there is nothing, no afterlife, no heaven, no hell, no God, no devil, just nothing. Listeners, I want you to hold on to this uh, dream, this particular inner demon, because this is something that comes back again and again in this story. Remember those first three themes, doubt, isolation, despair. And this is despair right here. She is despairing that there is nothing. She's not scared of the possibility. She is sure of it. And that is what separates fear from despair, right? Um, So hold on to that. Uh, But also hold on to those three counteracting themes, right? Conviction, communion, hope. She has a connection, a communion with her daughter. She is not alone. And the love between her and her daughter expels those thoughts when they are together. And likewise, we'll see later that Reagan has dark thoughts about divorce, etc., that are expelled when mom is with her. And boy, I sure hope that nothing happens in this story to separate them from each other because that would suck. Um, if I was, oh, 
I don't know, say a supernatural demon, the first thing <laughs> I do is to get these two away from each other so they can't hold each other up. Um, in the book, one of the worst things that the demon says to Chris is, you did this. You did this to her. This is your fault. The divorce, putting your career before everything before her, you did this. And I remember reading that and thinking, oh, you asshole. Because that is what Chris fears. She fears that she might not be a good mom. And that doubt gets bigger and more powerful when uh, she is alone. Well, and isn't that... I mean, I think so much of that boils down to parenting anyway. The nature of... I mean, again, there are these little beings that we take, you know, bring into our own lives. There's no instruction book. And we just kind of have to figure out how to do all this stuff on their own, on our own, and hopefully not screw them up, right? I mean, that's kind of every parent's goal is to like, figure it out as I go along and make sure that they come out not screwed up, hopefully better than I did. And, mm. and, and, it's, and it's, but it is a real fear, uh, you know, going through this process. And you're always, always wondering, um, are the choices that I'm making in some way going to be impacting how my child uh, grows into an adult? And when you're going through a divorce or when you've been through a divorce or a separation, as, as Chris has here, I mean, that that's, uh, you know, amplified because yes. suddenly now you have this rift in your life and now you're constantly like, what do I do to make sure that this doesn't lead them to uh, go down a much darker road? And so yeah. Yeah, I can see that she's in this place that, you know, all of these things are really weighing on her. Yeah. Yeah. The thought of, of nothingness is so interesting because, um, I, I was having a conversation with my stoner friends. I'm not a stoner, but I ha have a lot of stoner friends and they talk, you know, they, they were talking about the afterlife and they're like, all there is is mm. blackness. And I said, well, you know, yes, but blackness itself is just a metaphor because it's really nothing, you know, cause we're, we're all atheists and they're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, <laughs> it's actually like, you're like to, to put a, a face to nothingness is almost impossible. And so if, if dream, if uh, Chris is having these dreams about that, that that's something that, um, you know, uh, I'll never take enough drugs in the world to actually imagine what that's like. Nothing. Right. <laughs> well, and, and also I think it ties into, you know, I think the minutes that we're going to be discussing this week really tie also very much into her career mm -hmm. as an actress. I mean, this yeah. is a person who is always, you know, her livelihood is putting herself in front of audiences and, and always having that draw. And I imagine that there's also that fear of putting herself out there and not having an audience and that emptiness, that, that sense of, uh, you know, like I'm not worth it. You know, I'm not worth it for people to come and invest their time to watch what I'm doing. And I think that's probably also weighing something that probably weighs heavily on mm -hmm. anyone who gets themselves into this sort of, uh, position in the acting world. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah. You have a, you have that kind of calling, you have that kind of like inclination, um, in you. And yeah, the last thing you want to be is like a, just another tree falling in the woods. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> a tree on stage and nobody pays attention. <laughs> <Actually> <laughs> playing a tree. If, a tree, yeah, if a tree falls on stage and no one's in the audience, does anyone hear it? <laughs> but also this idea, you know, art is, is art is real art is selfish. And I hesitate to say that because I'm sure we have a lot of people who, are artists who might listen to this and, and that's something I mean, that we're I artists that, ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that at some point you have to recognize that, that uh, mm. there are things you sacrifice when you are an artist um, mm. of any kind, you know, um, the movies are, are the most prone to us thinking that because they also come with a glamour and, and money and, and that sort of idea. So it's like, mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, even if you are a novelist or a poet, you know, Emily Dickinson mm -hmm. was selfish. She had to, you know, find a spot where she was not dealing with her family and spend time away from, from them and away from the church. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that, that very act is, um, 
is lonely and yeah. um and and sacrificial to the rest of your responsibilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just to bum us all out. Some more. Yeah, no, no, no. Oh no, that's the that's the theme of this minute. I think right. no, um, uh, but. I remember somebody uh, talking about like, it is sort of a form of selling your soul Mm -hmm. because you kind of are giving up your life for this thing. Right. Um, and it is, if, if you look at it that way, right. I mean, like you, the, you know, the story of Faust and, you know, selling his soul to, uh, you know, Mephistopheles and, you know, getting like riches and youth and everything in return. But like, in a way you could, you could personify, you know, whatever your calling is, right. Writing, acting, sculpting, painting, you know, uh, podcasting um <laughs> and you could say that you know i am i'm giving all of my energy all of my thoughts all of my time all of my heart to this work and it, hopefully it will reward me with uh, <laughs> with with validation and riches and, and recognition and you know blah blah you know and uh, immortality which which is mm. uh, what a lot of artists are seeking right to have a body of work that yeah. that lives after you are nothing and, and people yes yeah, we'll know you when you are no longer there. Right, right. Which I believe it feels like it's kind of funny to think about because it's the other side of that coin of, uh, you mentioned it earlier, Keenan, the idea of Chris being afraid of nothingness. But then, hang on, like, you're not going to be around when the nothingness is happening. So, like, you won't even, like, she's almost imagining that she's going to be conscious that she is nothing. And <laughs> But then at the same time, it's like, you know, people desiring that immortality. It's like, yes, people will remember me. People will, you know, like we remember Shakespeare. We could call Shakespeare immortal, but also he's dead. And he's yeah. not, he's, like, he doesn't know that, uh, you know, some chucklehead on a podcast is uh, doing a running <laughs> gag about his, uh, about how boring about his works. He is. <laughs> about how <laughs> Like, uh-oh, here comes Shakespeare again. So they're making um, fun of me again. Yeah, but we, you know, we talk a lot about the Abrahamic religions, and they all have this idea that is um, linear. The afterlife, the afterlife is an extension of this life. It's different, it's better, it's superior, it's real, where this life is is in some ways not real, but it's a it's a straight line. So, you know, if you are um, if you are performing, um, not, not performing the religion, that's not how to say it, but if you, if you are in the religion's good graces, you live on forever in a line, which is different from some of the other, um, Eastern religions, which, uh, which say that the afterlife is, is not real itself and it's circular and also not, um, not tangible. Yeah. Or rebirth, all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember a scene, uh, from Faust. I saw, uh, part of a production on stage where, Faust is uh, talking about how he fears uh, the fires of hell and Mephistopheles kind of looks around and he says, well, this is hell. This right right here. Like, like you don't have to worry about like going somewhere at the end. Like you're here right now. Yeah. Yeah, That's very much like 1400, 1500, 1600, 1700 um, um, thoughts of, of what it was like, like, like the devil is not the master of hell. He's the master of earth. Like that seems to have, um, uh, slipped away from a lot of like uh, Christian preachings now, right? The Christian mythos doesn't quite have um, the devil as the leader of, of the earth, but that's what like um, John Bunyan would say, or uh, Milton would say, like, like the devil, like, the earth is itself hell. Right, right. He's the prince of this world. He's the prince of this world, right? To be worldly is to, is to be the opposite of being godly. Right, right. You know, satisfying your your animal needs, your you know, being hungry, you know, and lustful, and you know, and all that stuff. 
Hmm. All right, let's talk about some other things. <laughs> Heavy stuff, yeah. Let's let's get out of here and join Chris as she goes downstairs to, as Blatty puts it, life and sputtering bacon. I need mm. some bacon right now. Jesus. Um, <laughs> and thank God we get some levity here with the introduction of two of my favorite characters, Willi und Karl. Uh, they are Chris's housekeepers. And I love them. Uh, what do you guys think of these two? Yeah, it's fun to have them. And, and you know, thinking of Blatty as this comedy writer, they're kind of this um, this stock couple, right, of mm-hmm. the, the man who has to do everything around the house, but he does everything wrong, and the, the mm-hmm. wife who has control over all of it. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think they're a lot of fun. I love them. I love they're, them. It's, um, it's an mm-hmm. interesting pair because they're, they definitely feel like, uh, you know, and there will certainly be kind of a, a sense of a connection to perhaps their history as as uh, uh, Bert uh, confronts them later in the film. Mm. But, um, but there is, it's, it's an interesting sense of a pair of characters because they do feel kind of like these German housekeepers, you know? And it's, yes. uh, I, I find that to be kind of an interesting element to add in this film that really hasn't had necessarily like that political angle, but it does suddenly feel like there is something more going on with them. Like had, are they here because they had fled Germany? Like what's their mm-hmm. story? I, I I'm, I'm curious about uh, them as characters and yes, um, I, I, well, know, I, I'm always curious, especially from someone like you who has read the books. Like, do we have yes. more of a backstory with them? Oh, we do. In in the books, uh, they are expanded uh, beautifully. Um, so first things first, uh, they are not German, um, uh, and they will they will be very upset if you refer to them as such. Oh, they yeah. are Swiss. Yeah, so they are Swiss, and oh. that's that's one of the things that that is kind of um, this uh, tension between uh, Carl specifically and Burke as we get uh, we meet him later on is him getting drunk and, and calling. Carl, a Nazi, yeah. and him just kind of very silently, very stoically. It's like, it's like I am Swiss, and him just uh, Burke just going off on. It's like, oh yes, I've and, and you never went bowling with Goebbels, or you never, <laughs> you know, uh, drove Rudolf Hess around, and da, 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 and just, um, and it's definitely a, a something for uh, their relationship, um, and also. Carl specifically is hiding a secret in the book that we're going to get to a little oh bit my. later. Um, yes. It, and it, he is, he is uh, suspect number one when, when Burke goes uh, specifically for his physicality, his build. Oh, that's um, interesting. We which, don't have any, any inkling of that here. We don't suspect anybody in the right. house of doing any of this, right? Yes, Although it is yes. interesting that the one thing we, uh, again, they don't play into it, but the one thing that we really see him doing in this scene is bringing in a big jug of, you know, one of those five gallon jugs of water. Yes. And yes. so there is, there is obviously something physical with the mm-hmm, work that he's mm-hmm. doing here. Yeah. So in the book, he is described as, as very tall and very strong. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely get into that. But first, uh, yeah, let's uh, take a look at uh, Willie. Willie is played by Gina Petrushka. Um, I tried to find some stuff on her. There's not a lot on the internet. Um, this might be her fa- uh, most famous role, but it seems like she's mostly done uh, TV work before The Exorcist. And then one more thing after The Exorcist, a, min- a miniseries called Sybil, mm-hmm. uh, where oh, yeah. she plays Dr. Lazarus, and which interestingly stars a young Sally Field whose character has developed 16 different personalities. Huh. Um, <laughs> and if Max von Sydow were in that movie, he would say, there is only one. 
Sally Field. <laughs> right. So she would play one of the um, one of the doctors that Sybil goes to who is not as effective as Joanne Woodward's doctor um, yes. later on. So <laughs> Sybil goes and sees a bunch of people who try to help her. But but the only one who believes that she uh, has uh, what do you call it now? Dissociative personality disorder, something along those lines, as opposed yeah. to um, multiple personality disorder. Yeah. Oh, oh, I, I, it was mentioned in Hereditary. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right. Like I, yeah, IDD or something like that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um I might be wrong, um, folks. Yeah, it, again, if yeah, we're wrong, but, uh, you know, write in and tell us. But Sybil yeah. was this uh, miniseries that um, that both brought light to um, dissociative identity disorder, but then also, mm-hmm. um, you know, spawned a bunch of people to uh, to have symptoms of it when they probably wouldn't have otherwise. Retroactively, people have looked at that and, and said, like, oh, it's sort of a copycat effect, and, and you know, it might have been mm-hmm. um, kind of hypnotizing young impressionable people into into developing it. Right. Oh, yes. And you're correct. Yeah, it's DID. Yeah. Not D- ID. Oh, right, so what was right, it? Right. Oh, I said it in the Dissociative no, 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 identity. Said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Instead yeah. of multiple personality disorder, which is what they was called at the time in Sybil. Right. Right. Correct. I think they talk about DID quite a bit in like Split, I think is another recent. Oh, right. Oh, okay. It also hmm. brings that up. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, well, so that's interesting. That's later, the Sally Field show. Um, mm-hmm. We'll talk mm-hmm. about Sally Field a little bit later on. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's, uh, Willie, that's Gina Petrushka. Um, then, uh, in comes Willie's husband, Carl, played by Rudolf Schundler. And oh my God, this guy has a pedigree nine miles long, going all the way back to 1924. <laughs> Jesus. Um, he is a German actor, don't tell Burke, and a director, definitely don't tell Burke. 27 directing credits, 248 acting credits from 1924 to 1990. This guy worked. Um, now I will say, that he is the only actor in this movie for whom I see someone uh, different in my head when I read the book. Sorry, Herr Schundler. In the book, he is depicted as uh, this tall, powerfully built, stone-faced, expressionless, almost uh, gorilla of a man. In fact, he reminds me of Max the Gorilla Butler from Cats Don't Dance. Um, yeah, <laughs> oh, if, if you guys now we're that. falling into the Cats Don't Dance uh, Now trap. we're falling into the Cats Don't Dance. It's right next to the Shakespeare <laughs> trap, right? How does the kitty cat go? Um, and that's what makes him such a funny foil to Chris here because he's just standing there like, there are rats. Yes, I just said that, but the attic is clean. Well, okay, we've got tidy rats, no rats. Carl, I heard them last night. Maybe plumbing, maybe boards. Yeah, maybe rats. Will you buy the damn traps? Yes, madam, I go now. <laughs> no, not now, Carl. The stores are closed. They're closed, chided Willie. I will see. Chris and Willie traded glances, and then Willie shook her head, turning back to the bacon. Chris sipped at her coffee. Strange, strange man. Like Willie, hardworking, very loyal, discreet. And yet, something about him made her vaguely uneasy. What was it? His subtle air of arrogance? Defiance? now. Something else. Something hard to pin down. The couple had been with her for almost six years, and yet Carl was a mask. A talking, breathing, untranslated hieroglyph, running her errands on stilted legs. Behind the mask, though, something moved. She could hear his mechanism ticking like a conscience. She stubbed out her cigarette, heard the front door creaking open, then shut. They are closed, muttered Willie. (laughs) And that that's Blatty's comedy shining through. I really like the dynamic between Chris and Willie and Carl. It's so sweet and so cute. Um, and something to remember here, folks, Willie and Carl are hired help. They are not related to Chris or Reagan by blood. And that may not seem like an important thing now, but it will be later. So hold on to that. I, I well, want to point the, out. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Andy. Well, I just that that's interesting because I wasn't uh, I, I was trying to gauge their relationship uh, as I rewatched the film. I'm like, are mm. they? Uh, like they're the traveling, uh, you know, house 
um, housekeepers that kind of go with her? Like, did they come with her from California or mm-hmm. are they from this house? Like, I wasn't really mm. exactly sure where they came from. I mean, at the end of the film, they stay behind. But um, oh, do I, they? Oh, uh, well, d- at the, don't they at the very end of the film? They they're like uh, they like wave as she drives off. But that doesn't mean that they stay behind. I mean, they, mm, <laughs> yeah. they very likely could uh, go with her. But it, it is one of those interesting things. Like I was trying to figure out, like, have they you know, are they the kind of people who've been around the whole time that, uh, yeah. that Reagan has been growing up? Uh, you, know, you get the idea sure. that Sharon is someone who's been around and goes with them, um, who will be yeah. um, Chris's assistant, but not necessarily these two. In the movie, it's a little bit uh, more unclear, but in, in the book, they do live with her and they they live in the main house in Los Angeles as well. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And it's it's interesting because there is this kind of like fatherly relationship that Carl has with Reagan. Um, there's this scene later on where uh, Carl goes to Father Karras privately and we know him throughout the book as this as this rock as this as this guy who's never going to show any any emotion at all um but he goes privately to Karis and he says will everything be okay and and his voice cracks when he says and and miss reagan and it's just it's heartbreaking because you see that um and we're going to find out why that he has such this uh, such a, a connection to um, to Reagan, who is who is not his daughter, um, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a very kind of like close um, relationship, almost like like yeah. I would say that Reagan and Chris consider them to be family. Um, and in the end, so when they are when they are leaving this house and they are going back to Los Angeles, it's funny because, um, like you say, yeah, they go in a separate car to the airport, and Carl takes the family car and drives it from Washington back to LA, like on his own. Um, and I just want to see, I just want to like watch the movie of that. <laughs> Carl's you know, just... <laughs> the wacky adventures. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I mean, it's so interesting because, and I, I wonder if this is one of those points in the way the book was written versus the, the elements that Friedkin saw as not that important for the film, mm. because like when you have this whole thing, when at, at, at the beginning of their conversation, he's like, the attic is clean. Right. That kind of uh, he seems so um like uh possessive of the space mm. that's like I I know it's clean, it's my attic, I know how to clean my attic. Mm. Don't right. judge me. Like there mm. was that sense and I think that's one of those elements that for me the way I read that was like he came with this house and he was mm. taking care of them. He knows the attic is clean because he's the one who regularly is doing the upkeep of this particular property. Right. And so ah. I guess that's kind of the way that I that I went about reading it. But yeah, yeah it's, that's how it's, I would read the movie yeah. for sure, definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, there is a, there is a bit in the book that they don't include where they kind of go on this, uh, verbal fencing about the rats for a little bit longer. And Chris just, she has to, she's, she, she can't resist, uh, uh, messing with him a little bit more. So she takes like a Mickey mouse stuffed, uh, plushie doll and she puts it into one of the traps, uh, upstairs <laughs> because like, obviously the noises have been going on but sure. there are no rats. We're like Carl is right. Um, so the, the traps are still clean. They're still like untriggered. And so she goes and she puts this little toy mouse in one of them. And then she goes down and she's like, Oh, Carl, I thought I, uh, I thought I heard something upstairs. Why don't you go and check? And she's just hoping to get a reaction just to, just to get a rise out of this, out of this like stone of a man. Um, you know, just like Burke is trying to get a reaction out of him. And Carl comes down with the mouse trap with the Mickey mouse, uh, uh, plushie in it. And he just walks by, her and he mutters he's like someone is being funny (laughs) (laughs) 
And I love that, you know, that's, that's Carl to a T. He just, he <laughs> won't even react even when someone is, uh, is, is trying to, to get him to laugh. <laughs> that is funny. Well, and the whole thing also plays, I mean, to your point of, about the comedy, the fact that he is like, he basically drops literally like everything that he's doing to go deal with this yeah. rat trap issue that she has to the point where like he, he had already set the water jug, the full one on the floor. Right. He doesn't bother putting it in. He takes the empty one with him as he walks out. It's like, fine, you want me to do this rat trap thing? I'm going to go do it. And I'm just going to walk out in the middle of what I'm yes. doing. And Let me just drop what I'm doing. Yeah. Man. So it's it's funny the way that he reacts like that. And hmm. it's it's interesting because I suppose there is when you're working with somebody like a Chris or, you know, a prominent actor or actress, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it is it is one of those funny things where I do um, wonder if you get into like the a, a relationship where, you know, your your persona is allowed to come out a little bit. Because I can also see like with somebody like this, like you don't do that because that's how you end up losing your job. If we can talk about some of the blocking as, as Chris comes in, um, you know, because we're trying to we're trying to establish a lot without dialogue and be very efficient. So she comes in from the far side of the kitchen. She has a, it's a cigarette right in her mouth that's, that she yes, still has. I think so. Yeah. She brings down her script. She's passing everything. She goes to the coffee. Um and, you know, so we could see the entire room and just sort of, you know, see what she's bringing down with her and, and what's important mm. to her. And then uh, Willie will say, um, uh, good morning, Mrs. Mrs. McNeil. And, you know, that sort of helps answer a lot of the questions we might have if we didn't know the film. Right. Like what what's going on? Is she a single mother or, or what is it? Right? So it's Mrs. McNeil. And then Carl will say, madam, you know, differently. Yeah. and that establishes they're not related. Right. It's not. Yes. Like, right. Good morning, oh, this isn't mom. Right. Like right. <laughs> right. Oh, very good. Yeah. Just like very, very subtle. But it it tells us so much. All right. Well, um, so our minute ends with a brief glimpse of Catholic Hogwarts. No. <laughs> Expelliarmus et filiat spiritus sancti. See, it, it all works. It all works. Um, but no, uh, we will get uh, to this in the next minute. Uh, but for now, gentlemen, is there anything else you want to say for this minute? No, it's. I mean, it's a good minute establishing, uh, you know, our characters here. So I, I enjoy mm. it. Yeah, I think we got everything we can. All right. So Keenan. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. And Andy, are you thinking what we're thinking? I believe so. Until next time, folks. The, the power, power of rat traps, traps compels you.